This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Because if you can tell me what your habits are, I can tell you what sort of a person you are. I can tell you what your future looks like. But like I always say, life is 10% what happens to you. It's 90% what you do about it. The people who are most effective in the workplace believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past. When people don't believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past, they begin to disengage. You're listening to The Circuit of Success, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve success in every facet of life, only on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Now, your host, Brett Gilliland. Welcome to The Circuit of Success. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland, and today, I got to tell you, I'm really, really excited. I'm always excited, but today I'm excited. I read this book years ago. Uh, the author of this book, but I get to interview him today, Dr. Uh, Bill Danko. Bill, how you doing? I'm well. How are you, Brett? I'm doing well, doing well. Uh, it's good to have you on this show. Uh, we've got a lot of great people we've had and, and uh, over the years, and uh, just an honor to get to interview. So I read your book years ago. As you probably know, I've been in the financial world since I was 23 years old. So mm-hmm. started in 2001, and so now here we are. I'm 43 years old, so 20 years later. And uh, your book uh, is, is a book that I've read early, early on in my career and have helped a lot of people uh, with some of the stuff that you've brought. So there's no mistake. <laughs> no mistake. The Millionaire Next Door. So I was going to get to that. So The okay. Millionaire Next Door. Also, the other book, uh, Richer Than a Millionaire. Uh, you, there's that one right there. Um, just phenomenal books for those listening. Uh, you can get them on Amazon. We'll talk about all this stuff in the future. Um, here, Bill, but but I always like to start every show with kind of what what's the backstory, right? You don't just wake up and write these massively successful books and become a doctor and and do all this. But what's what's helped you become the man you are today? Yeah, well, you know, you talk about luck intervening on how things happen in life. You know, I come from a pretty modest background. Uh, my father had a tenth grade education. My mom was a high school graduate. Uh, my dad died at the age of thirty eight. I was five years old. And so, okay, so with that, um, you know, there, there weren't a lot of options in terms of schooling. And, you know, it's, I, I went to the state university because I could afford it. And uh, that's where I met Tom Stanley in 1973. I took a course in uh, consumer behavior. Uh, I got an A. <laughs> <laughs> that's important. Yeah. It, well, it, you know what? It really was because he liked my work ethic. And, uh, you know, he, of course, you know, died five years ago in a car crash, yeah. unfortunately. But um, in that 1973, uh, I assisted him with his very first study of the affluent market. And uh, boy, after a few years, he, he left that university, the State University of New York at Albany, to go teach at Georgia State University. But from 1973 to 1993, he and I did a number of academic papers together and a number of consulting studies together on, on, on wealth and who has money and who doesn't. So, it was in, so in that intervening 20-year period, uh, the dean of my school of business, who is one of my uh, uh, mentors, Bill Holstein, uh, who just died last year. Uh, uh, everybody I know is <laughs> starting to pass. Yeah, right. Everybody I know is either dead or dying. So, <laughs> but my point is, uh, but Bill Holstein, 
um, you know, saw some merit in uh, what I was doing. And he gave me a one-year contract to teach um, an introductory marketing course at the university after I got my MBA. And I told him, I said, gee, this is pretty good. You know, I, Bill, what do I have to do to stay on? And he says, Danko, go get a PhD. Okay. <laughs> so that's how that works. Right. <laughs> Just go get a PhD. Yeah. <laughs> so I applied to uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Uh, better known as an engineering school, but they also have the Lally School of Management. And uh, so I, I completed my PhD by 1983, uh, returned to the faculty at uh, the State University of New York at Albany. And uh, in 1993, okay, this is where it gets to uh, the, the nub of the book. Uh, Tom Stanley called me up and said, look, do you still have those old data sets? And of course I did. And he says, let's reanalyze it. Here's the concept. Let's look at people who have the illusion of wealth. And he, the, the tentative title for the study was Big Hat, No Cattle, hmm. you know, which became a sub chapter Love that saying. Yeah. in the book. But there's a lot of uh, pseudo wealth out there. You know, just because people have a, a big car and a big house doesn't mean they don't have a lot of debt. <laughs> That's right. And, and coupled with that, geez, you, you look at the student debt load uh, kids have nowadays. It's like having a mortgage, you know, when you're 21, just getting out of school. So, but anyway, uh, so that was the concept. So also in that meantime, I got married, had three kids, you know. And so when he called me up and about this massive project in 1993, I said, of course, in my oceans of free time, of course I can do this. Sure. What else? <laughs> uh so the book was launched in 1996, and uh, four million copies later, we can yeah. say it was a, a rich experience. <laughs> a very massive success. And it helped millions and millions of people way beyond the four million that you've sold. It, it really has. You know, it's in like in 40 languages, and uh, it's wow. provided uh, worldwide opportunities for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been, I think I've spoken in just about every single state of the union in a number of uh, foreign countries, Taiwan, Canada. Australia, Poland, wow. Germany, Switzerland, Switzerland, probably one of my favorites. <laughs> oh, beautiful, beautiful. So you, you've made a career, obviously, in a personal brand about talking about personal wealth and you know, wealth in America and, and all that. And, mm -hmm. and what have you, and you, you know, you talk about richer than a millionaire, um, a path to prosperity. So what, what is that path to prosperity? When you look at that and all the research you've done, what is that path? Yeah, maybe this continues the backstory and why that book right. is necessary. Um, you know, when Millionaire Next Door was launched in 1996, again, I, I was still on the faculty of the university. I had, in one year, I had more than 70 out-of-town speaking engagements. I didn't miss one class, but boy, there were some hellacious travel schedules to get sure. back. And, uh, and a very understanding wife. And, and, and kids, too. And children, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, in fact, um, you know, my daughter, my oldest, uh, she has her PhD and she's on the faculty of a college. And I said, Christy, why in the world would you put yourself through this? And she said, Dad, I saw you do it. I can do it. So <laughs> the kids are watching. They watch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of all three of the kids. They're all gainfully employed. But anyway. That's good. Yeah, right. They don't ask me for money. <laughs> I give them money, but they don't ask. That's for right. That's it, right. It, it's all good. It's all good. But um, in 1996, when when the book came out, and 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 this whirlwind of excitement, and doing my other academic research, um, 
my mother had a major stroke and oh. didn't care anymore for um, my quadriplegic brother. So wow. what do you do? You say, <laughs> um, family is important. So I vowed to keep my brother, Tony, who the richer than a millionaire is dedicated to, um, out of a nursing home, bought him a home, paid for his aides. And it's, uh, and every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I was the personal aide because it's hard wow. to get a aide. And here I am, a New York Times bestseller, you know, bon vivant, <laughs> you know, PhD. And you know what? Here I am dealing with a guy who can't even touch his nose. And, uh, you know, uh, I have everything, but he had a lot of uh, faith. And that's, and that's very important. And that's how Richer Than a Millionaire came out. You know, the, um, there was an essay from 1758 by Benjamin Franklin under the pseudonym, uh, Poor uh, uh, the Way, to, well, it was called The Way to Wealth. His pseudonym was Richard Saunders, as in Poor Richard's Almanac. And if you do a Google on The Way to Wealth, you'll find the 3,500-word essay readily available. But um, here's the key thing. He says, you know, being industrious and frugal and prudent are all wonderful things, but it's all blasted without a blessing from heaven. And we have this obligation to not only admit that, that we are just humble beings, but also to be charitable to others. And, you know, now it's interesting with Benjamin Franklin, um, you know, he, he belonged to two parishes in Philadelphia. And I think it was more for marketing purposes, you know, for his printing business, you know, working the crowd. You know, but, you know everybody in town. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He was uh, the ultimate networker. Okay. So, but with that said, you know, my background of saying, I got to help my brother. My mother could no longer do it. Uh, my brother also died five years ago of, you know, it was, he was good until he wasn't. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, uh, kept him out of the nursing home as I pledged. So did my wife help, or not too. It, it was my deal to, to deal with this. That's right. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I used to drive a Mercedes and I uh, traded that in to buy a wheelchair van. I got, mm. the, I got the best parking spots. <laughs> <laughs> right up front. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. So this idea of we're just passing through, we have an obligation to family, reflecting on Benjamin Franklin's work about being humble and understanding that there's no such thing as really a self-made man. It's really by grace and luck, we're able to do the things we do. And I had this uh, familial obligation, which I fulfilled, and I'd do it again. There's no question. Yeah. And um, But right now, I, I f I'm, no, I'm no longer under house arrest, so mm -hmm. <laughs> I can do a lot of things on my own terms now. <laughs> okay, So that's how the book came about in terms of just reflecting on the life of somebody who just got a, you know, a, a, bad, uh, a bad hand to play. Yeah. And, well, I tell you, you know, I've been doing the financial thing for 20 years, like I said, and you know, own an independent investment firm called Visionary Wealth Advisors. And I think the thing that we talk about is your health and your wealth. Absolutely. You can have all the money in the world, but if you have no health, then it's for what, right? And the same thing, you can have all the health in the world, take <laughs> care of yourself, eat your vegetables, right? Exercise, do all the things you got to do, yeah. but you don't plan on your money and you spend it all versus saving. And then, then it's for what, right? And so those two things are parallel. Yeah, no, absolutely. And richer than a millionaire, you know, we, we have this two by two matrix of it, it, and essentially, but it goes this way, you know, are you satisfied with life or dissatisfied with life? 
we have this uh, psychometric scale from the psychology literature called subjective well-being, SWB. It's valid and reliable, uh, created by Professor Ed Diener about, I don't know, 1980-something. But th- th- there's a footnote in the book that, <laughs> that references. Tell us. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, unfortunately, he put it into the public sector. Because you know he's used this scale on an international basis to look at the uh, the psychological health of uh, countries and uh, how happy are you? And I, we also look at near millionaires, those between a hundred thousand and a million dollars, and those over a million dollars in net worth. Now, why a hundred thousand as a breakpoint? Well, uh, you know. Right now, the, the median net worth in the United States is about $120,000 per household. When we did the survey uh, five years ago, uh, it was about 100000 So we excluded half the population because, look, if you're struggling, you know, there's all sorts of things going on in your life. But if you have you know, between 100000 and a million, you know, you're likely to, to get to that upper 10% over, t- actually, to be a millionaire. To be in the top 10%, you need, I think, about $1.2 million right now. Mm-hmm. So not even a million cuts it to the top 10%. Right. Well, I think, what is it, the income? I think I've read before, like around 212000 pushing the top 1% of income earners in America. And over hundred grand. I think, you're in the top 95%. Yeah, right. It, it, it's amazing. And, and you it say, well, gee, how, how can uh, you live in Manhattan? <laughs> on, right. And you, and you can't, really. You, you, you can't. But uh, Manhattan's a different story altogether, and St. Louis is a different story, and upstate yeah. New York is a different story. And, uh, and so the, the way Richer Than a Millionaire came about was, again, based on Franklin, based on life experience, you know, of saying we're just passing through and saying, well, what are the characteristics of those people who are really satisfied with life? And what we find, as Franklin said, uh, be charitable. Yes, indeed. Those who are satisfied tend to be givers of time and money. Those who are satisfied tend to be um, practicing the golden rule. Those who are satisfied, there's a good correlate here. They're not anxious about the future. I mean, look, everybody's concerned, but there are some people who just are crippled by the prospects of what's going on in our world right now. But if you have a a certain, um, well, positive attitude and a faith, you can... uh, you can get through this. That's right. There's, That's a, right. Lot of, there's a lot of crummy stuff out there. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, doing this for a long time, I mean, I've seen people with lots and lots of money that aren't happy. And I've seen people with very little money that are happy. Yeah. Right. When people ask me, okay, well, well give me the 10 second overview of what the book is about, Richer Than a Millionaire. I said, look, being rich is good, but being rich and happy is better. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The next best thing is being uh, modestly wealthy and happy. Uh, (laughs) What's it? Denzel Washington, I think they said, he said money can't buy happiness, but it's a good down payment. You know, so to the point is not everything. Yeah. Certainly helps. You know, and certainly there's the the literature, you know, uh, especially with lottery winners, you know, if you're irresponsible before winning the lottery, you're just going to be irresponsible with a lot of money. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, one of the best things I saw about that was a guy named Jesse Itzler. In one of his books, he's got Living with the Seal and Living with the Monk. But he talked about if you were a good person before you had money and now you have money, you're an even better person. Right? And if you were a bad person before you had money, you're an even worse person. Yeah. And I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. You know, you're familiar with FIRE, you know, financial sure. independence, retire early. Um you know, when I left the university, people said, well, what do you mean you're too young to retire? I said, I'm not retiring. I'm refocusing. That's right. <laughs> 
and recalibrating. Yeah, exactly. So maybe the acronym, you know, financial independence is good, but refocus. I don't know what that would spell. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. I don't know. We'll have to figure that out. And we talk about that with our clients is, is not that you have to quit, but you want to be able to walk in with the keys, right? And be able to turn the keys in because you want to, not because you have to. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, doing things, you know, and that's really the the basis in uh, the millionaire next door as well. You know, the whole idea is what do I have to do to become financially independent, right? Did your screen freeze? Can you see me? Oh, no. Brett, where are you? Can you hear me? You there? I'm here. All right. I'm here too. So we'll, uh, there we go. We're good. Okay. Did I freeze or just you? Yeah, no, I don't know what just happened, but we're good. We're good. You know, it's Verizon. One of the things we talk about is financial independence is, uh, I always say is it's being able to do what you want when you want without the fear of money. Yeah. That's truly financial independence. Absolutely. And yeah, and and it's a it's a great feeling, and it gives you the yeah. opportunity to be opportunity to be uh, super charitable as well. Yeah. You know, it's it makes it even better. So you've mentioned uh, Benjamin Franklin a few times, and I, I read a book years ago. I think it was called like uh, the Founding Fathers or something like that. And it, it talked about in that book that it's three times harder to keep your your wealth than it is to build your wealth. So hmm. when you hear that, what, what what do you think about that? You agree with that? Disagree with that? Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know about that proportion, but I I can say this. You know, like a you know a fool and his money are soon parted. <laughs> that that's, <laughs> that's one thing. But uh, but I know Franklin writes about the idea of you know moving from town to town for your occupation is the equivalent of having a fire in your house. You know, you got to hmm. rebuild. You know, in the next uh, in the next town. So there's. Um, you know, a lot to be said about having some stability. Right. Again, you know, I, I didn't have to move very far in upstate New York. Um, you know, went to school here. We have, inter, you know, an airport such as it is. The point is I was able to get everywhere just by being here. Yep. And now that we have Zoom in our life, my goodness. can be all over the world in yeah. seconds. <laughs> so when, when The Millionaire Next Door came out in 1996, what, what have you seen change from 96 to 2020? Obviously a lot, but what have you seen change the most when it comes to personal finance? Yeah. Well, one of the things that really concerns me is that student debt load. You know, mm-hmm. I believe that uh, going to a prestigious, uh, expensive school is some, somehow a ticket to ride. Right. One of the things we cite in uh, Richer Than a Millionaire is, uh, well, a couple of studies one is about the class of uh, 1985 from Harvard Law School. This is an article that was written in 1995, where students from Harvard Law said, we thought this degree was going to be our ticket to ride. You know, all we had to do was they were Harvard. Right. <laughs> and they find that you actually have to produce. <laughs> yeah, <know. laughs> amazing. And a, and a second one from the economics literature looked at the difference between um, uh, what is the real factor that is going to explain a student's fu- future earnings? Is it the school or is it the personal motivation of the student? Well, it's the personal motivation. That's of right. and, uh, and so one of the things and, and a greater societal issue is, uh, boy, over these last 20 years, we've become more dependent on government. We have less personal responsibility. You know, we've gotten to moral relativism. Well, who's to say? We have all these uh, politically correct uh, caveats of what you can and cannot do. Everybody's walking on eggshells. 
Yeah, it's making it more difficult, getting a decay in society. This is why I like being in the Adirondack Mountains so much. (laughs) Because, you know, nobody bothers me. (laughs) It's COVID-free for the most part. And, uh, you know, but boy, it it really concerns me when I think about my kids and my grandkids. What are they growing into? Yeah, Yeah, I think that your point of that work ethic, and you mentioned it really early on, too, is that, uh, you know, you're co-author, uh, Mr. Stanley had his thoughts as well as your work ethic is why he called you, I believe. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think, I, I think it's one of those things you can learn. A lot of people talk about, can you teach it? Are you born with it? You know, which one is it? Where, where do you fall in that situation? Oh. Are you born with it? Can you teach it? And well, if you, you can don't... teach it, how so? <laughs> Again, when I look at, uh, I'm pretty familiar with Western Pennsylvania and coal mining country and sure. regular folks there. And, and you look at the Pittsburgh Steelers as an example, and they say, look, we could have a life of hard work in the mines, or we can get into pro athletics. <laughs> you know, so given the choice of let me be motivated to achieve something greater, I don't want to do what the uh, mm. parents and grandparents did. And, and in my case, I mean, my goodness, you know, gosh, you know, my, my, again, my first funeral was my father's. And I, I guess I've been thinking about mortality forever and saying, look, you know, got to make the best of it. So, That's right. you know, you can't get a home run unless you get up the bat, right? You got to right. keep swinging here, man. You know, and not everything works, but the, some stuff does. And you well, gotta, I think to that point, using that analogy of baseball, it's, you also know you can be a Hall of Famer and get out seven out of 10 times. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. You know? you, know, you know, in the marketing literature, I guess Professor Phil Kotler in his marketing management book, you know, it was where, where I learned about it called, you know, the expected monetary value of a client. You know, you, you hear about, okay, this client could have a million dollar sale that I might get, but there's a lot of these clients. And most of the time when I contact them, they're going to say, no, I'm not ready. But the point is one of these times they will say, okay, let's do it. I'm ready. That's right. And so even though you make a hundred calls to make a million dollars, you have to say to yourself, Every time I make a call, I just made $10,000. That's right. Break <laughs> it down in bite-sized pieces. That's right. Because my goodness, being told 99 out of 100 times, no, 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 can really have uh, some deleterious effects on your ego. That it can. <laughs> uh, so talk about this net worth chart you have. It's the net worth chart versus happiness. Talk yeah. about that for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, we, In Richer Than a Millionaire, we have this uh, – uh, five statements people refer to or, or respond to on a seven-point scale. And so if y- you score low on all of them, you get a score of five. If you score high on all of them, you get a score of 35. 20 is the break point. We find that about 80% of the millionaires are pretty well adjusted. They score above 20. But then just as we did in the... Um, a millionaire next door, where we do the contrast and compare between prodigious accumulators of wealth and under accumulators of wealth, we have these mutually exclusive groups, and we can look at what are the behavioral characteristics of those who are happy with money versus those who are disgruntled with money. I mean, what's the sense of being a, a miserable millionaire? <laughs> right, right. I mean, oh my God, you got it all, man. <laughs> And, uh, you know, 
there, there's some highlights. I hope I can find it quickly here. But there's one, this um, uh, Carol Hochberg. I, I've never met this woman. But anyway, it, it's in here. It's, it's, a, it's an obituary I read in the New York Times. Carol Hochberg, who died of breast cancer, I consider to be richer than a millionaire because she said, I know she, she was in the financial planning business. And she says, I know there's more to life than making rich people richer. Hmm. <laughs> you know, and then you That's look a great at, point. And then the guy who founded uh, Victoria's Secret, um, you know, he committed suicide. He was not richer oh, wow. than, yeah, he, he, that's also highlighted in the book. He, um, his, his ex-wife said, you know, he always had this thirst to achieve more, but he really didn't have to do it. And he felt like a failure because he could not replicate it. So he jumped off the uh, Golden Gate Bridge and uh, end of story, right? Well, so, but then you, so get, you found on this chart that as long as they're above 20 in this example, then the happier yeah. they are. And what are some of those characteristics? Yeah. Well, again, they, they tend to be um, uh, charitable, importantly. Uh, they tend to be engaged with a, a greater number of people. Now, look, in the psychology literature, when you just look at the happiness uh, issue, this is true. The, the well-adjusted person in our community generally is, you know, married once, has children, has aspirations for the children and grandchildren. Um, you know, part of the community will volunteer, uh, you know, in the old line things like uh, Rotary and Kiwanis. They'll uh, be engaged in their church or their synagogue. These tend to be the happy people in the society. You know, about 20 years ago, a sociologist from Harvard, Robert Putman, um, wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And, and it's, it's really quite a, a serious, uh, I, I lent my book to somebody and I can't find it. It used to be on my bookshelf here. <laughs> the ball Not a rule, no, no loaning books. Yeah, right. Exactly. Go buy it on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But Robert Putman makes the point. We, we have a deterioration of this uh, social fabric and it's, it's not good. You know, people, there are fewer joiners and maybe there's a greater sense of unhappiness in a general sense uh, in our society. But those who do understand what it means to be engaged tend to be the happy ones. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, to your point, charitable, right. Part of the community, part of your church, synagogue, whatever it may be. I mean, those are things that you and I know and our listeners know, but I think it's important for us, even myself, to slow down and think about that stuff. Yeah. Well, and you the know, gratitude behind all that. Yeah, exactly. There, there is gratitude. In fact, you know, when we look at the great religions, you know, in Judaism, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, there's the passage about give your coat to those who have no clothes, feed the hungry. And in Matthew 25 in Christianity, I mean, this is what drove uh, Mother Teresa, you know, that which you've done to the least of these you've done unto me, you know, we really have to help others in society. And in Islam, one of the five pillars of Islam is almsgiving, you know, being charitable to others. I can't think of any great religion that does not include this as something that's good for you. <laughs> uh, it, it, that's it's great. good for you to be charitable. And, uh, and even Benjamin Franklin, without you know saying it specifically in terms of a, a religious sense, he says it's really essential to be engaged with your fellow man and woman in your society to help those because there's always going to be somebody who needs help. <laughs> oh, hundred percent. What I think too is the feel good for them, but also the feel good that you have personally. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and some people ask, well, on my survey research, is this cause to effect or affect the cause? You know. When you're doing static research, 
say, okay, these people say they're happy on this scale and they're also charitable. Well, there's a good association there and I can't prove cause and effect, but I can show you that, well, the great religions say you got to do this and it's for your betterment, for society's betterment. So, um, so when we look at the disgruntled, um, boy, th- there's this dentist, um, I call him Dr. Payne in the book. <laughs> he says, I hate my wife. I hate my kids. I hate my practice. <laughs> I have a lot of money and I'm going to spend everything by the time I take my last breath. That's you know? great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there are exactly opposite who you want to be. Yeah. There are some pretty, um, you know, maybe they have psychological issues too. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, they, there's something that's going on if you hate your kids and you hate your wife and, uh, yeah. you know, you know, Very there's, sad. there's one guy, I call him, uh, you know, uh, Job. <laughs> he has the spirit of Job. All this, not, all this crummy stuff happens to him, but he never loses faith. Ooh. And uh, I think, and he scores pretty well on the uh, satisfaction scale. You know, one of my uh, Roman Catholic priest friends helped me with a pretest of the questionnaire. And he said, Bill, you got to put this question on there. Are you at peace with your soul? I said, huh. Mm. And I did. And just answering that yes or no, I'm at peace or not at peace, and correlating it with that psychological construct of subjective well-being, it's almost a perfect fit. Those who have that internal, I know I'm at peace, are also those who tend to be scoring high on the happiness scale. I mean, so th- so there's, you know what, one of the things that I think made um, a rich um, millionaire next door so successful was that we had convergent validity. You know, we had 20 years of studies. We had focus groups, personal interviews, uh, IRS data, census data, our own questionnaires. And all these various con- uh, data sources converged on the basic truths that we find in Millionaire Next Door. And in a similar way, even though richer than a millionaire is only a few years old, I, I think it has those same qualities. I mean, people are telling me that, yeah, th- there are too many things. You know, it's the religion, the psychology, the, the attitude. You know, in fact, th- there's even a term, a Greek term called metanoia, M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A, which means a true conversion of heart. And, and I find this um, in, in the military literature when uh, Douglas MacArthur uh, reconvened his uh, troops after World War I in a, in a speech. I have it here someplace in my stack. But he says, you know, we're all struggling to prevent war. And, and it can't be done with politicians. It's not done with generals. It has to be done with a true conversion of the heart to say mm-hmm. war is not the answer. And this is the general <laughs> who helped us in World War I, World War II, and Korea. And uh, uh, he was uh, really a great leader. But he knew that the answer was not more atomic bombs and bigger bullets, right. although we need those. Unfortunately, yeah. we need it. He says it's really something that comes, well, this metanoia, this a true change of heart to get this understanding that's going to create a, a more you know, satisfied life. Now, this, this is exactly what President Eisenhower in the 1950s talked about, um, you know, being the great general. He feared that we're going to be caught up in this uh, in military industrial complex. And we are <laughs> right now. One of my sons works for Lockheed Martin. So I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I want him to keep his job. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but my point is, it's uh, you know, in Lockheed Martin, it's doing very well in the stock market. That's for sure. And right. and uh, it's and right now, until we have that true societal change of heart and people really have this understanding, we're going to need those weapons. That's right. That's right. So I, I get asked this a lot. I'm sure with your obviously with your background here, you get asked this a lot as well. But people will say, Brett, when will I know enough is enough? Or when, what is the number? Right? Yeah. You ever get asked that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, yeah. um, this is something, uh, in, in fact, part of my discussion with my, my former dean, Bill Holstein, you know, we were talking about this and I, you know, I had some data analysis questions and wanted to share, I wanted to get his perspective. And uh, there's a chart uh, in the book. Um, oh boy. I think I sent it to you, didn't I? I, I made. Oh uh, yeah, you actually did. Yeah, th- there it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, it's it's on page twenty six. But my point is there, there for your for your viewers there. But I'll explain yes. what's going, I'll explain what's going on here. <laughs> okay, it, it's a curve. It's a curvilinear chart. When we ask people, all right, what's your current net worth? And then a follow up question: How much do you think you need in order to feel rich? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you know you have enough? Okay, so if you have five hundred thousand. In actuality, to feel rich, people have told us on average they need five times that amount or $2.5 million. Those who have $2.5 million to feel rich, they say they need twice as much or $5 million. Those who have $5 million <laughs> say they need $8 million. Now, look, here's the reality. As I said, the median net worth in the United States is about $100,000. To be in the top 10%, you need about $1.2 million. To be in the top 5%, $3 million. To be in the top 1%, right now, $11 million is the minimum threshold, is the threshold to get you into that top 1%. Now, you see, you, you, you know, we, we hear about the celebrities and, you know, Musk and Oprah, and Bill Gates. I mean, you know, you, people who are in the stratosphere in terms of net worth. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, obviously they achieved it, but is how much is enough? Well, when you look at that graph and you see where it starts, the inflection point on a downward basis, that's about the $5 million mark. Okay. <laughs> if you're at $5 million, man, you're doing way okay. Yeah. <laughs> you're really- You're yeah, uh, just fine. Yeah. Because when you look at the the bottom part of the net worth distribution, you know, under 100,000, my gosh, there's a segment down there that has a negative net worth and yeah. they are- I think the key to that is too, not to get into the personal financial side of things, uh, and certainly for not for us. But I mean, talking to that listener, I mean, it's it's you, you hear so many people say, "Oh, I'll just save ten percent." Well, that's easy to do. They say, right? Well, it's, one, it's not easy to do. But number one, <laughs> number two, I don't think ten percent savings is enough. No. We talk to our clients all the time with twenty percent of your savings needs to be done minimally because we're we're working uh, for X amount of time, but we're actually living longer. Right, people used to retire, and they'd retire for five or ten years. They were dead, and money didn't need to last that long, right? And so they still stuck with ten percent. But it's not that because yeah. now we're retiring, and people are living for 25, 30, 40 years past retirement. Yep. In fact, uh, in my empirical studies, we show that twenty-two uh, percent is typically what the uh, wealth builders are. Yep. are uh, That's right. You know, I've had the opportunity to talk to some athletes. In fact. You know what? One one of my agents. Um, maybe you actually get this insurance newsnet. Do you get this? Uh, no. Well, okay. Um, Mike Toblub, this Hall of Fame. He goes, Bill, you're you're in here. Um, oh, wow. it's about you know athletes saying, um, 
gee, I, I want to be wealthy. And so in the locker room, they threw him a copy of Millionaire Next Door. Nice. <laughs> Read this. Read this, buddy. Yeah, Real right. quick on that, I used to be the speaker when the St. Louis Rams were in town. I got to go and I was the financial guy that would speak to the St. Louis Rams preseason. Yeah. Right? They would do their camps, right? And I would come in and, and, and talk finances and I would – I'd put a million dollars on this big whiteboard, right? And they're all in there, all the big players, you know, Sam Bradford's the world, they were all in there. And uh, I would say a million dollars and I'd say, pay your agent, pay your taxes, here's what's left. (sighs) And people are just astounded. These athletes were astounded the fact that that's all they had left, right? And I, I think, again, it does, it goes back to education that we don't truly understand if somebody makes 100,000 or a million or 10 million a year, what the ramifications are when you're paying taxes. And I know our listeners all know that stuff, but you got to save a large percentage of that to be successful long-term. Yeah. Yeah. You're right on. You know, when I've spoken with some high earners, especially athletes, whoops, he's still there. Yep. My phone call came in. Sorry. Okay. Okay. All right. Good, good picture though. Good still picture. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I say, look, look at as terms of thirds, yeah, one third is taxes and administration, one third is spendable, yeah. and one third is long-term investment. You know, and that's a pretty easy way of cutting it up. That's right. That's exactly you know, right. You know, um, one of the key ahead, theme, one of the key themes in um, in Millionaire Next Door, of course, is uh, this uh, self-imposed economic scarcity, where you say, "Look, it's up to me." You know, we have all these societal influences saying, "Well, look, look at these beautiful people driving these new cars." Look at these people in these big houses. You know, they must be really doing well. Right. And what you have to do is get it through your own head saying, well, wait a minute. This is what I want to accomplish. And don't let my income dictate my lifestyle and, and have it expand like that. Set your goal of saying, I will save consistently that 20% or 22%. I will avoid excessive debt. My gosh, you look at the leverage problem in the housing market, you know, Whatever happened to the time when you could put 20% down, then get a mortgage? Now it's, oh, you don't need anything down or 5% down. Yeah, give it to you. You need skin in the game, don't you? Absolutely. Skin in the game is a big deal. You know, big believer in that. You know, and, and Benjamin Franklin, again, 250 years ago said, the borrower is a slave to the lender. And that sounded familiar to me. Um, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, verse 7, you'll find 2,500 years ago, <laughs> the borrower yeah. is a slave to the lender. Man, when you're in debt, you're in bondage. Yeah. No, you know? you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I think, too, is that, you know, with doing what I do for a living, I mean, you got people that come in and want to talk about, you know, they, they also want to enjoy it, right? So I, I personally don't have a problem with having having a nice home. If you want to drive a nicer car, that's fine. But you also got to save money. That's, that's right. the key, right? And I know you just said that, and I know that's so simple, but that's the key. That's right. You can have this nice thing, but make sure you're saving the money over here. Yeah, there was something like in MS money, whatever. Um, but a majority of households can't even come up with $400 for an oh, wow. You know, there, there's something like that. You know, there was something in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was last year, that the title of the article was, um, yeah, it was kind of silly, but it makes it makes a good point why Warren Buffett doesn't get a haircut. <laughs> and he, I said, well, gee, maybe I thought this meant he's going to um, lose money on bonds or something. But right. But no, he says, look, if I spend fifty dollars on a haircut and I do that every month, all that when you look at the future value of that money, that's three hundred thousand dollars by the time I'm a hundred. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but it's these little things. You know, yep. when you say, do I really need that $5,000 wristwatch or a $50 yep. Primax? You know, and do I really need that Mercedes? I drive a Subaru now, and I'll tell you, I need it. That's in right. the- <laughs> you need it in the snow. That's right. That's right. That's right. Especially in I the like index. That's right. You know, the, um, yeah, there, there, there's so many good lessons in the certainly uh, millionaire next door, but also in, yeah, terms, in terms of richer that goes beyond saying, man, we, when you realize you're just passing through, come on, be charitable because there's a lot of people in need. Not yeah, just- and I think you find that out over time, don't you think? I mean, when you're in your 20s and you want to start a career and you're like, oh, I think I can do, do this and make a lot of money. And it's really not much more than that you know, tell a lot of people. But then I think as you get older and wiser, you're starting to say, okay, hey, the money's great, but let's make an impact here. That's right. That's right. In terms of uh, scholarships and just supporting your universities and hospitals and churches and synagogues, it it just, uh, it's the right thing to do. There's no question. So uh, I know you get your website, richerthanamillionaire.com. So check that out, richerthanamillionaire.com. What do you, what do you hope people get from that? Well, we have a series of articles that we've, you know, written, you know, with my colleague uh, Rich Van Ness. Uh, he's um, he's about ten years older than I, and uh, and uh, when I was in the thick of it, dealing with my brother, and I said, "Oh, look, Rich, I'm going to put all this stuff on the back burner." Now, this guy's a Marine by training. Mm-hmm. He goes, no, no, we got a mission here. <laughs> we will get this done, <laughs> or die trying. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So we, we got it done. And, um, you know, perseverance is really its own reward in this sense, you know? Yep. And, and, but yeah, he lives around, you know, 15 miles north of me. And so it was easy for us to get together, you know, and talk about these ideas about, you know, what do we want, the legacy we want to leave our children and our grandchildren. You know, I have three kids, five grandkids. He has three kids and uh, three grandkids. And uh, we each have one wife. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. You know, there's a neurosurgeon I interviewed in Florida. Uh, he was worth $20 million. And he says, but you know what? In one afternoon after a divorce with a stroke of a pen, it was $10 million. Yeah. <laughs> so and another good thing about this neurosurgeon, he said, you know, I was doing all these complicated cases. You know, he's a very skilled individual. And he says, but I'd find myself getting sued because it wasn't as good as people thought it should be. So he got rid of the discretionary practice and became an emergency room neurosurgeon saying, look, mm. I saved you. Okay. This is the right. best we could do. It's all and perspective. It's all perspective. He still makes money, you know, um, but boy, it's, you, you learn, you learn a lot just by interviewing people and saying, wow, you really do. They, they went through this and the nastiness of a divorce. In fact, one of the things, you know, we point out in uh, richer than a millionaire, you know, having a stable household is really uh, worth it in every way. You know, Stephen King, the very prolific, uh, you know, fiction writer, okay. but he has a book called on writing a nonfiction book and, and, and what his process is. And that book, he says, look, there's no way I would have been as productive and prolific as I am if I did not have a stable spouse by my side. There's a lot lot to be said for that. Yeah, I did a study at one point of all of our financial advisors and just kind of went through from upbringing to sports to spouse to you name it. And, And that was a big one. That was a really, really big one I found in just in our industry the most uh, successful, the ones that have the most supportive households. 
period. Yeah. One of my friends in the construction industry who makes a lot of money uh, and he's on his second wife and and I like her. She's a trophy wife. But at one time (laughs) he he said, you know, man, the way she spends, I wish I had my first wife back. (laughs) (laughs) I trade her back then. But, you know, so be happy with what you got, right? That's right. I'm very blessed. Very, very blessed. Absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. Bill Danko, where can our listeners find more of you? I know we just said richerthanamillionaire.com. We can go get the books at Amazon. Anywhere else? Yeah. You can get it at a bookstore, but man, with this uh, pandemic thing, it's hard to get into a bookstore. That's right. They they can order it, and some people do. You know, um, a number of colleges and universities um, have made it required reading both books. Uh, for the students, like in a personal finance course. So even some university bookstores uh, wow, that's have great. It available. And, you know, so they buy in bulk, you know. You know, it, and I got to tell you, yeah, again, my colleague and I, for Richer Than a Millionaire, we, we said, you know, we're both educators. You know, we've, I've personally taught more than 10,000 students in the university, and he has a similar sure. amount. And uh, so that's a lot of one-on-one stuff in a 15-week <laughs> uh, semester, yeah. you know, getting to know these students. And um, one of the things that is so obnoxious in, in education is not only tuition, but also the cost of textbooks. You know, the, the, uh, the paperback, and we made it paperback, you know, it's seven ninety nine. you know. Right. The, the Kindle version is, I think, three ninety nine. Yeah, three ninety. dollars Yeah. And so we, we've been over, it's, we even have a Polish version. <laughs> <laughs> Can't be richer than a millionaire or be the millionaire next door if you're spending 35 bucks on a book, right? Well, yeah, times, uh, you know, 10 courses a year and right. 35 bucks. I'll tell you, there are some uh, books that cost $200 a yeah. copy. And uh, now, how old are your kids? I, I sense them probably pretty young, not in college. Yeah, 15, uh, so freshman high school, seventh grade, fifth grade, and first grade. Yeah. And so you got some uh, in three years, say, what's 100000 a year for tuition? Yeah, yeah, what the heck, right. It's some no-name yeah. school. <laughs> yeah. But boy, yeah. So look, also, and one other point here is, you know, get them when they're young. Um, I'm involved with uh, junior achievement. Uh, in this uh, greater upstate New York area, at least tangentially involved. I've spoken with some students and some management there. But their mission is to get this idea of good stewardship um, and and proper use of money into junior highs uh, classes and and high school classes. And if we can do that, I think we'll all be better off as a society. Because, man, when I look at the curriculums that some students have, they have no idea about anything about money in, yeah. long, in long-term anything. <laughs> no, I teach, a, I teach a course. Well, I say teach a course. Let me rephrase that. I, I guess speak. I'm the professor of the day two times a year at Southern Illinois University here mm. in our area. And that's the whole thing is teaching these kids about financial 101 and what people don't know. And it's a shame. You just, you, you hope they can start to pick up more of that. Like you said, junior high, high school and into yeah. college. And, you know, and having parents, emphasize it in the home. And, right. But what do we have now? We have a broken society in many ways. You know, there is a story in our local paper in one of our inner city schools. There's more than 100 kids during this pandemic who are just missing in action. You know, yeah. they don't even show up for the Zoom calls. Right. They just... Very sad. They're just... And there's nobody at home to tell them you must do it. Yeah. We have some significant challenges to deal with and do uh so our listeners find you can get you on linkedin i know that's where you and i connected yeah yeah, yeah. linkedin um yeah 
I don't like face. Yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah. Look me yeah, up. LinkedIn. LinkedIn's a spot. You can find them under Dr. Uh, Bill Danko. And yeah. uh, well, Bill, it's been awesome having you. Really appreciate yeah, you being yeah. on the circuit of success and sharing all your wealth of uh, your wisdom that you've got over the years. This is great. I'm, I'm glad we uh, made this work. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to say Merry Christmas. <laughs> hey, Merry Christmas right back at you. Thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Okay, Brett. Be well. You do Take the care. same. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.